Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our January-February 2018 issue. You'll hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Childhood trauma is common and associated with both worse cognitive performance and disruption to the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access in young adults. The extent to which these associations persist into adulthood is unknown. To investigate this question, researchers supported by the National Institute of Mental Health examined self-reported childhood trauma in relation to cognitive performance and the extent to which cortisol explained this association in two independent samples of older adults. The authors found that the number of retrospectively recalled traumatic events experienced in childhood was associated with worse cognitive performance in three groups of older adults. Older adults with generalized anxiety disorder, psychiatrically healthy older adults, and older adults with anxiety or depressive disorders. Specifically, the cognitive domains most associated with childhood traumatic events were slower processing speed, worse attention, and poor executive functioning. Cortisol, a hormone associated with stress, did not explain this association, a finding that signifies the potential importance of other physiological factors. The authors conclude that these results highlight the public health significance of childhood trauma and the importance of developing interventions to help younger and older individuals with a history of childhood traumatic events. Bulimia nervosa is a severe life-threatening illness that carries significant disease burden, particularly among young adult women. Bulimia nervosa is treatable, but fewer than one in five women with an eating disorder receive professional help. Part of the difficulty is that evidence-based psychotherapy is often limited to specialist clinics in urban settings. In this study, funded in part by the National Institute of Health, the authors analyzed data from a randomized controlled trial to determine the cost-effectiveness of face-to-face versus Internet-delivered cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, for bulimia nervosa. Their objective was to evaluate the cost-effectiveness of Internet-delivered CBT to inform third-party payers' decisions about making this treatment available. Total health care costs, including those for health service visits for any reason from baseline to one-year follow-up, were captured. 179 adults with dsm 4 bulimia nervosa were randomly assigned to group face-to-face or group internet-based CBT for 16 sessions. The primary outcome measure was abstinence from binge eating and purging. In the primary study, patients who received internet-based CBT were slower to achieve improvement but did as well as face-to-face patients by one-year follow-up. The cost per abstinent patient at post-treatment was approximately $7,000 for face-to-face and $11,000 for internet-based CBT. At one-year follow-up, the cost was 16000 for face-to-face and 14000 for internet-based CBT. 
there were no statistically significant differences between treatment arms in cost-effectiveness. Based on these results, the authors conclude that Internet-based CBT is cost-effective compared with face-to-face therapy, as Internet-based dissemination may broaden treatment access to patients unable to attend specialist eating disorder services in person. Insomnia is a common symptom of psychiatric disorders, but can also be a comorbid disorder, often contributing to poor outcomes. For some patients who do respond to psychiatric treatment, insomnia persists, indicating that it should be a separate focus of treatment. In this new CME Academic Highlights activity, sleep disorder experts discuss how to effectively evaluate patients with psychiatric disorders for comorbid insomnia, as well as how to safely and effectively implement behavioral and pharmacologic treatments. Medications discussed include FDA-approved agents, off-label drugs, and over-the-counter agents. Read the full activity for a summary of their discussion, complete with guideline recommendations, realistic case-based practice questions, useful clinical points, and references. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. The relationship between severe inflammation and clinical depression in the context of major medical illnesses has been addressed in other studies, but the relationship between clinical depression and inflammation caused by mild infections is unclear. Researchers in Taiwan, with funding from Taiwanese institutions, conducted a nationwide population-based cohort study of medically healthy subjects with and without a history of repeated low-grade infections over 16 years. Their goal was to see if either group would have an increase in vulnerability for major depressive disorder, or MDD, and whether those infections could be associated with higher resistance to antidepressants in patients who developed MDD. During a follow-up period of up to eight years, the authors compared rates of MDD between the two groups in two independent cohorts. Stratified responses to adequate antidepressant trials, including easy-to-treat and difficult-to-treat responses, were also compared in the MDD patients. Results showed that during follow-up, the high-inflammation group had significantly greater chance of developing MDD over time than the low-inflammation group. The high-inflammation group also had a significantly greater likelihood of having difficult-to-treat depression. This study is the first large-scale retrospective cohort study to report a reliable temporal association between a history of repeated low-grade infections and subsequent diagnosis of MDD and poor responses to antidepressants in two independent cohorts. The authors conclude that these data support the view that repeated mild infections play a role in the pathophysiology of MDD and antidepressant-resistant depression. Multiple pharmacotherapies for anxiety exist, but for children and adolescents, SSRI antidepressants are the recommended first-line medications. With funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers sought to describe the initial anti-anxiety medication prescribed to children with a recent anxiety diagnosis and estimate how long anti-anxiety medications were continued. 
Using a large insurance claims database, the authors identified children of age 3 to 17 years who were diagnosed between 2004 and 2014. Of 84,500 children who started taking anti-anxiety medication, 70% began with SSRI monotherapy. The most common non-SSRI medications used at initiation were benzodiazepines at 8%, followed by non-SSRI antidepressants at 7%. Although SSRIs were the most commonly used first-line medication for pediatric anxiety, the authors note that a third of the children began therapy on a non-SSRI medication for which there is limited evidence of effectiveness for pediatric anxiety, and a notable proportion initiated with two anti-anxiety medication classes. The authors conclude that by describing the initial anti-anxiety pharmacotherapy utilized in children with anxiety, this study can inform efforts to better tailor medication use in pediatric anxiety disorders. Anorexia nervosa affects up to 2.2% of women, and more than 50% of these individuals report gastrointestinal symptoms. The relapse rate for anorexia nervosa is high at 50 to 60 percent, and there are currently no approved medical therapies for this disease. Ghrelin is a hormone produced in the stomach that stimulates appetite and gastric emptying. Because women with anorexia nervosa have slow gastric emptying, the authors hypothesized that treatment with a ghrelin-like agent would shorten gastric emptying time and lead to weight gain. In this study, sponsored by Modus Therapeutics, the authors investigated the effects of relamorelin, a ghrelin agonist, on gastric emptying and weight in women with anorexia nervosa. Twenty-two individuals were randomly assigned to relamorelin or placebo. Participants self-administered the study medication or placebo every day for four weeks. The authors measured gastric emptying time and weight at baseline and at the end of the study. After four weeks, results showed that the group treated with relamorelin had a significantly shorter gastric emptying time than did the placebo group, and there was a trend towards more weight gain in this group as compared to placebo. Three subjects, all randomized to relamorelin, discontinued use of the study medication due to symptoms of increased hunger. In view of these results, the authors conclude that a ghrelin agonist may be a possible future therapeutic agent for individuals with anorexia nervosa with the caveat that some individuals may not tolerate this therapy. Circadian rhythm dysfunction is common in bipolar disorder and plays an important role in mood dysregulation. However, no study has investigated whether circadian rhythm dysfunction affects the clinical course of bipolar disorder. To shed light on this question, researchers from Japan, with funding from the Japanese government, set out to test the hypothesis that circadian rhythm dysfunction could be a predictor of relapse in euthymic bipolar disorder patients. 104 euthymic outpatients with bipolar disorder, diagnosed according to DSM-5 criteria, participated in this prospective 48-week follow-up study from August 2014 to April 2015. The diagnoses of circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders were made based on participants' sleep logs of more than four weeks, according to the ICSD-3. 
The primary outcome was time to relapse of mood episodes, as defined by the Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale and Young Mania Rating Scale scores. Of the total 104 subjects, 51 experienced relapse during the 48-week follow-up period. Multivariate Cox hazard regression analyses reveal that two or more previous mood episodes within the past year and comorbidity of circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders were significantly associated with the time to relapse of mood episodes. The authors conclude that comorbid circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, mainly delayed sleep-wake phase disorder, could be a significant predictor of relapse in bipolar disorder patients. In this study, researchers in the Netherlands investigated whether the degree of treatment resistance can predict a worse depression outcome. To do this, they used the previously developed Maudsley staging method which had not been tested in a large cohort of depressed patients. The study looked at 643 participants in the Netherlands study of depression and anxiety who suffered from a current depressive disorder. The patient's Maudsley staging method score at baseline was retrospectively determined. The authors then quantified whether this score was prospectively predictive of the two-year course of depression after baseline. Results showed that the Maudsley staging method significantly predicted depression course, and the researchers conclude that the Maudsley staging method is a promising tool to predict depression outcomes irrespective of treatment. The associations between dementia and varicella zoster virus, or VZV, remain unclear. This nationwide population-based cohort study from Taiwan aimed to investigate the risk of dementia associated with VZV infection and the impact of antiviral treatment. With funding from Taiwanese institutions, the authors collected data from Taiwan's National Health Insurance Research Database, which represents nearly 99% of the population. During a seven-year period, 1997 to 2013, nearly 40,000 cases of herpes zoster were identified by ICD-9-CM codes. Each identified patient with herpes zoster was compared with a matched comparison subject. Both groups were followed until the first diagnosis of dementia, withdrawal, or the end of 2013. Of the more than 78,000 study and comparison subjects, 4,204 were diagnosed as having dementia during a follow-up period of slightly longer than six years. Herbie Zoster was associated with small but statistically significant increased risk of dementia. Prescriptions of antiviral therapy were associated with a reduced risk of developing dementia in patients with herpes zoster. The authors conclude from these results that a slightly positive association exists between herpes zoster and dementia. Antiviral treatment may be protective in preventing dementia in patients with this virus. Little is known about the manifestation and prevalence of restless leg syndrome in pediatric populations. A recent survey study conducted in China with support from Chinese institutions examined sleep disturbance and behavioral and emotional problems associated with restless leg syndrome in 11,831 adolescents with a mean age of 15 years. Participants completed a structured baseline questionnaire at school during their regular school hours. 
The survey assessed sleep duration, sleep problems, behavioral and emotional problems, and hopelessness. The authors found that 9.5% of adolescents had symptoms of restless leg syndrome and 2.2% had clinical restless leg syndrome, defined as experiencing symptoms at least three times a week. Compared with adolescents without the syndrome, those who had the symptoms demonstrated two- to three-fold increased risks of insomnia, internalizing and externalizing problems, and hopelessness. These associations were independent from adolescent and family demographic characteristics and other sleep and mental health variables. The authors conclude that pediatric restless leg syndrome is common and is associated with increased risk of insomnia, hopelessness, and internalizing and externalizing problems. They suggest that clinicians should assess for it in adolescents with sleep and psychopathological problems, and likewise, assess and treat sleep and mental health problems in adolescents with symptoms of restless leg syndrome. Alcohol use disorder is often seen in tandem with depression and anxiety disorders, and the question of whether to treat depression or alcohol use first is debated among clinicians. The latest installment of the ASCP Corner offers guidance that can help clinicians distinguish alcohol-induced disorders from independent disorders. Recommendations about managing these patients in outpatient settings are also provided. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. How safe is it for pregnant women to use ADHD medication? In the latest installment of his Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade reviews recent studies on methylphenidate and amphetamine use during pregnancy to evaluate the findings and weigh the evidence. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Non-responders to an antidepressant are often switched to a new antidepressant. Whether this strategy is effective, however, has not been proved. No studies to date have randomly assigned treatment non-responders to a new antidepressant or to placebo. To address this knowledge gap, the authors of this article conducted a systematic literature search of studies in which non-responders were either switched to a new antidepressant or continued with the so far ineffective antidepressant. As the initial search yielded only four studies of this type, the authors also included data from four additional studies in which the patients in the continuation arms were allowed to increase the dose of the antidepressant, allowing for a separate, broad analysis distinct from the strict analysis of data from the initial studies. Six of the eight studies found no difference between switching or continuation. One study found switching to be superior, while another found continuation to be superior. In their meta-analysis, the authors pooled the results of these studies and found that the two strategies did not differ meaningfully. Differences in the pre-specified primary outcome parameter of the meta-analysis, the standardized mean difference between the two strategies with zero indicating no difference, were close to zero for both the strict and broad analyses. These differences were too small to reach statistical significance and were also far from being clinically important. 
all secondary outcome parameters, such as rate of responders, remitters, or dropouts, and restricting the analysis to the methodologically best studies supported this finding. The authors conclude that there is a discrepancy between the frequent use of and the lack of evidence for the strategy of switching antidepressants. Long chains of one antidepressant after another should be avoided, and physicians are encouraged to rely on better evaluated strategies for antidepressant non-responders. Stimulants are very effective for ADHD symptoms, but their abuse potential remains a significant barrier to treatment. Administering an opioid receptor antagonist, such as naltrexone, blocks the rewarding effects of a high dose of a stimulant. This finding has suggested that adding naltrexone to stimulants may rid them of their addictive potential, though it was unknown whether opioid antagonists would also block the therapeutic effect of stimulants on ADHD symptoms. In this six-week, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial funded by the U.S. Department of Defense, the authors sought to determine if the stimulant medication methylphenidate remained effective against ADHD symptoms even when combined with the opioid receptor antagonist naltrexone. 31 subjects completed three weeks of the study and 25 completed all six weeks. Results showed that the co-administration of naltrexone with methylphenidate did not reduce the clinical effectiveness of the latter for ADHD symptoms. Additionally, the combination did not produce an increase in adverse events compared with methylphenidate alone. The authors conclude that the successful treatment of ADHD with the combination of naltrexone and a stimulant could lead to the development of a non-addictive form of stimulant treatment for ADHD. Depression is highly prevalent in patients with chronic pain and is associated with decreased function, poor treatment response, and higher health care costs. Therefore, development of new treatment modalities for this population is important. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, or MBCT, is a group intervention originally developed for prevention of depression relapse that combines cognitive behavioral therapy with mindfulness exercises. In this pilot randomized controlled trial, researchers studied the efficacy of MBCT on depression in patients suffering from chronic pain. The researchers adapted the original MBCT program to a depressed chronic pain population by modifying the psychoeducation and cognitive behavioral therapy elements. Participants were randomly assigned to MBCT or to a waitlist control. The researchers found that patients who attended at least four MBCT sessions had a significant improvement in depression and mental health compared to patients randomly assigned to the waitlist. No significant changes were found on pain intensity and physical health. Tolerability and acceptability were good with MBCT, with almost no adverse effects and a retention rate of 73%, which can be considered high in a population suffering from chronic pain. The pilot nature of the study and its relatively small sample size might have prevented detection of relevant effects on some clinical outcome measures. The authors therefore recommend that larger studies are needed to establish this promising intervention.
Cognitive deficits such as those in memory, attention, executive functioning, and psychomotor speed are common in depression and contribute greatly to the burden of the disease. These deficits are present not only during depressive episodes, but also between them. Cognitive dysfunctions are difficult to treat with traditional antidepressants, but few other strategies have been or are under investigation. With funding from the National Institute for Mental Health, the authors of the present post-hoc study sought to examine the efficacy of adjunctive zeprazidone on cognitive symptoms in adult patients with major depressive disorder, or MDD, who continued to experience persistent depressive symptoms after eight weeks of treatment with the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor S-citalopram. The post-hoc analysis was conducted on a database derived from a previously published study. That parent study was a multi-center, parallel, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial in which 139 outpatients with persistent symptoms of MDD following an eight-week open-label trial of escitalopram were randomly assigned to adjunctive zeprazidone or placebo for eight weeks. For the assessment of cognitive and executive dysfunction, the Massachusetts General Hospital Cognitive and Physical Functioning Questionnaire was used at each study visit. Study medications were provided by Pfizer and Forest Laboratories. The authors found that ciprazidone used adjunctively with escitalopram did not demonstrate a greater efficacy in MDD for cognitive symptoms compared with adjunctive placebo. A great number of patients continued to report a high level of residual cognitive symptoms at the end of the study, suggesting that cognitive dysfunction is a common and difficult-to-treat domain in depression that deserves more attention and research. Based on these results, the authors conclude that future studies specifically examining the role of atypical antipsychotics, as well as other augmentation or switch strategies for cognitive symptoms in MDD, are warranted. Misdiagnosis of early behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia with major depressive disorder is not uncommon and may result in inappropriate treatment selection. Researchers in Switzerland, with support in part from Swiss institutions, set out to improve discrimination between these two disorders using a novel facial emotion perception task. Study participants were asked to discriminate between basic emotions of varying intensities. Results showed that patients with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia could discriminate between emotions of different valences, such as sadness and happiness, but could no longer discriminate between emotions of the same valence, such as sadness and anger. In contrast, patients with major depressive disorder discriminated between emotions as well as healthy people. Also notably, patients with Alzheimer's disease dementia also did as well as healthy people, suggesting that their cognitive deficits did not influence their ability to discriminate between emotions. These findings suggest that this facial emotion perception task may help differentiate behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia from major depressive disorder with possible applications in routine clinical care. This article is freely available online please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com.
Antidepressants are well established in the first weeks of acute phase treatment, but despite their widespread long-term use, evidence on efficacy after eight weeks is sparse. The authors of this privately funded article reviewed and summarized all double-blind placebo-controlled trials on acute phase antidepressant treatment of at least eight weeks duration. 100 studies with about 35,000 patients were analyzed. Only two of the studies reported results for up to 24 weeks. The authors found that antidepressants consistently performed moderately better than placebo. No decline was found in treatment efficacy over time, and results remained the same whether the authors analyzed depression scores or rates of remission or response. While untreated depressive episodes are thought to last for 3 to 12 months, the authors conclude that even when spontaneous remission is accounted for, patients receiving ongoing antidepressant treatment will be more likely to have a better outcome after half a year than patients taking placebo. In recent years, ADHD medication use during pregnancy has been on the rise. In the latest installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade reviews recent evidence on whether amphetamines, methylphenidate, and adamoxetine exposure in early and late pregnancy are associated with adverse gestational outcomes such as preterm birth and preeclampsia. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the January-February issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.